On this episode of the Scott Radley Show podcast, one in four post-secondary students in Ontario, according to a study by the government's own agency looking into post-secondary schools, one in four are not prepared to leave university, leave college, and join the job market. Their number skills and their literacy skills, not up to snuff. How is this happening? We're going to talk to an expert about that. And Steph Potasik, the old and now new coach of the McMaster Marauders football team. He's back now in Hamilton. He was introduced today. He joins us. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Troubling story. A lot of troubling stuff today, but a troubling story uh, came in the Globe and Mail yesterday, maybe the day before, but in the last couple of days, what it is, the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario, which is a big mouthful, but essentially that is the government agency that is in place to oversee the post-secondary schooling system. Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario did two studies of over 7,500 students at 20 Ontario post-secondary institutions, university and college, and found that one in four students, one in four, achieved scores below the level it considered adequate in literacy and numeracy to succeed in today's job market, and less than a third met superior level scores. Many employers, this came from a spot that many employers were saying the students they have encountered coming out of university, coming out of university, don't have the communication, problem-solving, and critical thinking skills that they are seeking. One in four post-secondary students, according to the government agency that monitors this, don't have the literacy and numeracy skills they need when they graduate. I want to bring in Dr. Anton Alahar. We've had him on here before. He is a professor emeritus in the Department of Sociology at Western University, and he is a straight talker when it comes to the state of our education system. Uh, Dr. Alahar, thank you for doing this again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I read about this study, I hear these numbers, and from the outside, as someone who has kids in university, as someone who pays or helps to pay tuition or watches kids save money to pay tuition because they say, if I go to university... I will hopefully, probably have a great job lined up for me when I get out of school. This seems really almost impossible to believe, and I'm wondering if from someone who's on the inside, if it seems as impossible or if these numbers seem to jibe more with your experience. Well, Scott, there are, <clears throat> there are a number of difficulties. I will get back to the issue of the jobs presently, but I think that what we need to do, you talked about higher education in the introduction uh, we are in a system or a situation that is akin to pay to play. And I sarcastically think instead of talking about higher education, I speak about education for hire, hmm. where those who can afford will get it. Now, we are dealing with a situation of why system wide uh, literacy, cultural, educational dumbing down. The very article to which you refer um, is replete with uh, syntactical and grammatical errors written by a reporter. The very title has problems with misuse of commas and so on. Um, it, it says in two places, less than a third of graduating students, when what they mean to say is fewer than a third, and later on, uh, less than 30% instead of fewer. 
than 30%. Those are basic grammatical issues. Um, they, they, they talk about, quote, this work aims to measure student skills instead of students as apostrophe. Now, if this is a reporter reporting on the lack of literacy and is making all of these kinds of mistakes, <laughs> what the hell is left for the rest? Now, I, um, to go to the question that you, you mentioned as someone who has uh, children in university, one of the big problems is that universities were never meant to be vocational or pseudo-vocational institutions. That's why community colleges were developed. Universities were invented to address the creation of a literate, a cultured citizenry. You don't go to university to get skills to get a specific job. That's why you go to community colleges. Today, the university has become perverted, and people are going there, and they want their children to go so they can get a job at the end. And they may very well get the job because they may get training, but they will not get education. And in that respect, I find that the modern university has been undermined by the market, the, the idea that I want more scholar for my dollar. And because of that, the universities have become more training grounds rather than educational sites. Doctor, the, the question, though, that really jumps out to me is if we have one in four, surely I believe that professors, I hope that professors are bright enough and educated enough that they can spot these one in four who are going to be passing through their classrooms, not capable of reaching those levels. Why are the professors then not saying, you, 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 you either got to do better or you got to get out of here because you're not living up to the expectations that we have as a university? Well, that, that's a very um, marvelous question but it goes to the heart of the problem. Uh, universities have ceased to be educational institutions, and they, be, they have become places of business where the bottom line matters. I no longer had students, I had customers. So we know that in the economic logic, uh, the customer is always right. I am not going to say to the students that you need to buck up, you need to do this, that, and the other aided and abetted by the culture of political correctness, so that many of the professors, especially the younger ones, are the ones who want to keep their jobs, who want to get good ratings, good evaluations, and as a consequence, they don't rock the boat. And it is very, very clear to me that many of my junior colleagues are not stepping up because they're not getting the support <coughs> from, excuse me, from the administration to to do their jobs. So what happens if a professor failed a quarter of his class? If these numbers are correct and one in four are not good enough, what happens if a professor fails a quarter of his class or her class? You're, you're magnificent, Scott. I did a public lecture not too long ago where I began with a rhetorical question. What will happen if we fail all of our students who deserve to be failed? And I was talking to an, uh, an audience of teachers and a hush fell over the room because they all knew very well that they have to hold their noses, turn their heads, and put the grades on, so that you cannot do that, because these are our customers. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Talking about a story about a study, actually, that says one in four Ontario post-secondary university college students don't have the requisite numeracy or basic literacy skills 
to be able to go out into the modern workforce and do what employers are expecting them to do. 25% of our university and college students, in other words, are being pumped through the system, according to this study, which is by the government group, the government agency that monitors this stuff. It's a government study. 25% of students are being pumped through the university and college system unprepared for what they are supposed to be doing. Dr. Anton Alahar is joining us. And just before the break, doctor, I asked you, what, why would a professor not simply identify that 25% and say, you're not good enough? You were talking to a group of teachers, raise this question. Please continue with your story. Yes, I think it is important for us to, <clears throat> to ask, what would happen if indeed we weeded out that 25%? What would the chair of the department say? What would the dean say? What would the vice president say? These are our customers. We are in keen competition for customers with other universities. We have our university fairs where we put up our booths and we do all of our things, our uh, flashy dance to attract uh, customers. And in that respect, we have gone the route of many U.S. universities where it is about sports and entertainment, where our varsity team, who has won more Vanier Cups and who has won more this and that and the other, would be the, uh, the selling item. Now, we have also to think about the culture of the, the wider culture in which the young people find themselves. It is not their fault. Yet, the culture has made them into the narcissistic young people they are. Their passions are rooted in the so-called smart technology linked to the internet, cell phones, video games, tablets, alternative reality shows. And this leads them no longer to appear, to care about the environment, about their neighbors and their communities, or even about politics and world problems. They don't vote, we know that. Their sense of entitlement and their sense of empowerment that they get from us as their parents aids and abets the increasing cultural shallowness that has been politically programmed and a part of our modern political culture. This is the, the, the type of a class, the type of student with, with whom, with which we are dealing. But I remember, and I've, you've been on here before talking about education things, and if I remember correctly, this is not just the students. Because if I remember one of your comments before, you've actually had university parents speak yes. to you about their children's grades. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's way different from just entitled kids. That's now a much bigger problem that mom and dad who are paying for their kids' tuition are expecting that their kids are getting excellent grades and getting a job when they're done regardless. Uh, certainly. I mean, and these are the parents who are also filling out the application forms for their kids to, to get jobs. And I've heard of cases, you too, maybe, where the parents are negotiating the salaries for their children afterwards. <laughs> this is part uh, of the whole thing. But we are complicit. I am part of that, um, the, the baby boom generation, and we are the ones who made sure that our children would not have to go through the same heartaches and headaches that we went. So we have coddled them, and we have protected them, and we have said if little Jimmy is going to go to the backyard to play, make sure he has a helmet on just in case he bumps his head. Or These children do not know failure. We have not permitted them to experience it, and as a consequence, they have serious major meltdowns when they encounter a professor like me who tells them, you know what, you're not special. You might be special to your mom and dad, but in this class, you have to earn special status. You don't come with it. 
Now, that is enough. Add to it the, the epidemic of mental difficulties, mental illness, and so that's, uh, that people are having today. And as a teacher, you're loath to start calling it as you see it for fear that you will have the whole uh, edifice come crumbling down on you. So as a consequence, it has become very enabling. And we do know that in primary school and so on, you are no longer permitted to fail a student. Now, where the devil are we going with that? Well, it means that every kid has to keep getting pushed through. And we've also uh, now have a, a belief system that everybody should go to university. And so if you can never fail, and if everyone's supposed to go to university or college or college, something post-secondary, mm-hmm. yes. the, no. it seems like a logical conclusion to draw that if you just keep pushing people through, some will succeed and some will not, but everybody goes through. But it's not only that, you see, and, and you're correct in what you've said, but if everybody has to go, and if the measure of our society being a wonderful society is that we have many more BAs and diplomas than others. What has happened is that at the high school level, grades have become woefully inflated, and the students show up with their A's and A-pluses when they're not A and A-plus students. And instead of the university telling them that the high school lied to you, we have faculty members and, and administrators who go along and continue the fiction. So as a consequence, you have many, many people who have BA, MA, RSVP, DDT, and, so, <laughs> and, and they can't produce in a commensurate manner. And this is where the rubber meets the road. So when we need the top-notch engineers and the computer people, we are going to India and to China to get them. It is, uh, we're out of time, sadly. I could talk to you all night about this. It's a fascinating topic. And it's a troubling topic. Uh, his name is Dr. Anton Alahar. He's a professor emeritus in the sociology department at Western University. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier today, McMaster made official what we've known for a little while now. Uh, they pointed out today it was the least good secret in the city. Everybody knew about this by today, but nonetheless doesn't make it any less impactful and doesn't make it any less exciting for people who like McMaster football and, frankly, Ontario University football. Uh, Steph Patasic, who won a Vanier Cup for the Marauders, took them to two other Mar- uh, Vanier Cups, is back as head coach again. Coach, welcome back. Congratulations. Scott, thanks. Thanks for having me. Is this where you thought you would be a month or so ago? <laughs> uh, no, I, I've learned in the crazy world of football coach, and if that's your career, uh, <laughs> you you never really know, ever. <laughs> what had you you had gone out because, uh, and we'll get into some of this stuff, but you had gone from McMaster to the Thai Cats, and then to the University of British Columbia. While you were out there, had you kept up with what was going on at McMaster as a former coach? Do you always keep up on your old teams? For sure, and, and you're a fan of, of the student athletes that you've recruited, and, and uh, uh, certainly the, the the great people at Mac, the staff, and, and uh, seeing where the program's going, you, you definitely do. Uh, football coaches are pretty busy in football season, so it's an occasional stream of a game while you're breaking down film and you see it in the background. But definitely kept tabs on the Marauders. So if you had kept tabs on them, then you would have seen and heard and known what was going on back here with the coaching situation, which was unfortunate. But when, when that started to happen, did it ever cross your mind that I may be back there as head coach again soon? And again, I, I know, uh, uh, no, that, I mean, <laughs> uh, you're, you're busy with your own season. Um, you know how many great people are surrounding that program and, and, uh, you, you know, uh, the support from, uh, 
the alumni base and, and the community. Uh, McMaster can attract top-level coaches at all sports. And, and so uh, it's, it's sure, you dream about the, the dream job, but it's, it's not a very realistic thing. And uh, didn't, it came together pretty quick, but we certainly weren't planning this from a mile out, I can tell you that. Well, let me put it one other way, because I remember the day or the day or days when you left to go join the Ticats and, and talking to you, and you had told me the story of sitting down with the McMaster, with Greg Glenn Grunwald and Mark Alfano, the, the folks who ran athletics, and you had told me it had been a really tough thing to sit there and tell them that you were going to go. When you walked off campus two years ago, had it been in your mind that that would be the last time you would work at McMaster? Did you think that that would be it? Because once you've given that up, you're not coming back again. It, it uh, you certainly got to be willing for that to be the case. And and so the opportunity with the Tiger Cats, what I believe was kind of a once in a lifetime thing. And and um, you're you're not asking them to hold your spot. Uh, you're hmm. you're you're saying you, you do anything you can do to help them and hope the program grows and does great things. Uh, and you hope you set them up. For success and and so yeah no it's it's definitely when you make that choice you know you don't you don't know uh football community in this country is not so big that you're, you you don't expect to cross paths and, and be able to work with some of these great people again but to have this exact same title two and a half years later is is pretty odd what was the reason for you that you did decide to leave and go to the tie cats what was the, maybe it's obvious but what was the lure of taking that job i think um, and rightfully so. There's so many young coaches that have grinded out in that league as position coaches and worked their way up, and uh, huge uh, all star players, and 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 they're the ones that progress to be coordinators and eventually head coaches. And so um, that that was a transition with my family. I, I don't know if I could have done it that way. And so the unique circumstances with the Tiger Cats needing an offensive coordinator and training camp being. Uh, less than a month away, and Coach Austin being such a, a, a great offensive mind, the stars aligned where uh, rather than going the traditional route, they were willing to take a chance on a, a youth sport head coach, and and so that hadn't happened in like, 13 years in youth sport, and I don't think it was going to happen again, so it was a tough one to pass up. It didn't last as long as maybe you might have hoped or liked. Was there any regret that you ended up doing that? Gosh, no. The, the learning experience from from Coach Austin and, and guys like June Jones was, uh, I feel like a year in the CFL is, is kind of like five anywhere else because it's so intense and the season's like 18 games long. And, and so um, that the things that I was exposed to and the lessons that I learned on and off the field, I, I felt like were going to impact me for a lifetime and I, I wouldn't trade them for anything. It's impossible. I mean, if it's five years worth of learning, it's going to be difficult to whittle it down to one or two things. But were there a few things that you can look at that you specifically say, I learned that because I took that CFL job? Uh, I mean, yeah, definitely there were. Uh, I mean, Kent's, uh, Kent's, the way Kent looks at a football game and the way he breaks down an opponent and the way he builds a game plan um, is, uh, I think, brilliant. Uh, uh, June layered added layers to that um and then this past year seeing blake nill and his leadership style and how he he works student athletes so hard but they're incredibly loyal and and love him uh and seeing how he reconciles all of that uh these are lessons that are making me not just a better football coach but a better dad and a better person so yeah no there's there's too many to talk to 
I do wonder, though, because your last year that you were here at McMaster as head coach, your team averaged almost 45, 44 and a half, I think, points a game, 45 points a game. You go to these places and learn, you say, from Kent Austin, who was great on offense, and June Jones, who was great on offense. Could you actually be a better offensive coach now than you were back then? My knowledge is certainly, um, I I understand it at a higher level, and and I think I can teach it um, at a higher level than I could back then. And and I have more answers to different solutions from defenses. And and again, 18 games in the CFL, you see about every defense known to man, and each week you come up with an almost totally new playbook to uh, attack and and catch them off guard. And and so, uh, yeah, I feel like toolbox just, there's, if, for, you're supposed to build a, a system around your great players, not the other way around. And I feel like I got more tools to build those game plans, uh, whatever talents my athletes bring to the table. Are those applicable though in Canadian college football? Because there, I mean, let's be honest, there is a difference between CFL football and U sports athletes, just with their experience, with their knowledge of the game. It's impossible to do everything you would do in the CFL in college. For sure, and and so the the degree of uh, the same play will work in every league, but uh, the amount of teaching points and, and the amount of adjustments and the things that, that you can get away at the highest level uh, needs to get watered down and tapered back a little bit. And uh, you sport athletes are as smart as any athletes in any sport in the world. There's no question in my mind on that, but you are correct that they don't necessarily have had uh, the, the background and the coaching from the little leagues all the way up. And so there are some football IQ things and, and things that they need some time to get, but they're smart. They're going to get it. When I mentioned about the 45 points or whatever that uh, that your team scored your last year as Mac head coach, it, it, it leads to another question, and that is it it's you're walking into a situation where I think it's fair to say the expectations are going to be very high based on what you did here last time with, with the Vanier Cup championship and two other appearances. That had to be something you contemplated about whether or not it was a wise move to try and top what was already a pretty good performance. Yeah. Yes. And there's, there's no question. And, um, I hopefully, uh, and I'm getting the sense of, uh, the coaching staff that, that coach Knox put in place. And I, I think we always believe that we're holding ourselves to a higher standard than, uh, the public or the press or the, the department and, and we, we're, we're pushing to be at the highest level all the time. And so, uh, you know, it's not a lot of stress when your internal drive and, and, and goals are higher than the external ones. And uh, knowing Coach Knox and, and this locker room a little bit, it is, and uh, it's going to continue to be. Would it, maybe it wouldn't, but would it have not been a little easier, easier for you to go to a school where you hadn't been before, where there would have been, there would have still been expectations. Your name now carries expectations, but where you didn't have that first act to try and top. You know what? I I do think I'll be lying if I didn't say, um, uh, being a family man and thinking education is such a a big part and uh, all that already exists at McMaster. And so there might have been lower hanging fruit just in 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 some of the programs where uh, that focus and that that direction um, might have been unique and and would have helped uh, traction and recruiting and a whole bunch of things early. Uh, but you know what? Uh, being in a department on the campus that has the same values and, and wants the same things for their student athletes is is a pretty good environment to be in. It was my understanding that your love for football, your absolute love for football is in being a football coach, the X's and O's and coaching football. And a lot of the other stuff that you have to do as a head coach of a college football team, a university team, 
with the recruiting and the fundraising and everything else was something you were willing to do. You were happy to do, but it, it was secondary. So when you're back now as part of your deal, has anything changed? Is, is the role that Steph Potasic has in version two, the exact same as it was in version one, or is there a slight change? Uh, I mean, I think there's been tons of changes in two and a half years and, and the evolution of staffs uh, as opposed to uh, a head coach and maybe one full-time assistant uh, grinding and plowing through as much as they could. Um, we're, we're blessed now to have uh, three full-time staff and, and more part-time support and, and just the infrastructure has been growing on every level. Um, and so it, it uh, I think head coaches now need to be more managers of, of their people and make sure they put the right people in place and, and hold them accountable. And uh, the deliverables aren't are spread across a, a few more talented people. And um, at the end of the day, uh, young Stefan Batasic might have thought it was more about wins and losses. And a little older, this is this is about developing good people. And, and wins and losses come as, as, as you get quality human beings in your in your organization. One of the things, though, that again, that one of the lures of having you, I think, around the school is because of your reputation. And I, I've talked to enough players over the years that speak so highly of you. Will you be, one of those things is your ability to recruit, I, I would think, is a big draw for the school. Will you still be involved, as involved as you were before in recruiting? I, I, yeah, I, I think uh, a head coach ha- has... Um, sending your your son off to university, the reality is he's going to spend more time with me and my coaching staff than he is with you as a parent, and and so I think that decision's got to come down to the trust of of the gentleman running that that locker room, and and so uh, yes, uh, if anything, with the extra support, that means I get to spend more time um, with the the young recruits and 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 families, and, and making sure there is that comfort level and and. Uh, that's the lifeblood of the program, and it's super fun. Uh, you like that? Know. You oh, like yeah, sitting I, in the living rooms with mom and dad and the kid and talking it over? Uh, that that's it is super fun, and we laugh about it uh, four or five years later, and and t- revisit those those awkward talks from from way back in the day, and and uh, yeah, it, it's it's special, and that that when that when a parent is trusts you to take care of of their boy, uh, that's. That's something that you don't take lightly. It is ironic that because you have only been gone such a short time, many of the guys who are going to be on your team next year are guys you had actually recruited. No, definitely, and I saw a few of them today, uh, and and that's that's the exciting, really fun part to to come across a uh, Lucas Bill who's going to be a fifth year free safety and a, a really talented kinesiology student that left home, uh, left BC to come to, to McMaster and ran into him today. And there's, there's, there's still a few stories like that. I haven't been gone so long. So, uh, I'm looking forward to connecting with all of them. You had, uh, I just got a couple of minutes left here, but you had just before you went to the Ticats, if I recall correctly, you had signed an extension with the team with, with McMaster, with the school. And then this job came up for the Ticats. When you return to Mac, do you just jump in and does that same deal that you were on kick in or are you on a new contract now? No, I, I, uh, Mark Alfano and, and the department, um, and I had to start from scratch and, and things changed in two and a half years across the board and, and just, uh, I can't speak um, more positively about how professional they all handled that, and um, it's one of the reasons we were able to get to this point so quickly. And 
I'm excited to get to work. Well, clearly the fact that you decided sometime earlier this week or made the final decision and were able to be introduced today means you drive an incredibly hard bargain. I mean, you and William Nylander are almost one and one A in how difficult <laughs> your your bargaining is. Obvious, which makes me honestly, and we joke, but it makes it strikes me that this was something you once you had decided that this was something you really did want to do. Right. I, well, no question about that. The 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 time spent was not contemplating how great McMaster was. It was more um, Blake Mill and, and, and getting me a job to, from the Ticats. I, uh, I have so much respect for him. He's a great man and a, and a great football coach. And, and getting an opportunity to talk to him about some of the opportunities in Ontario, had to wait until I saw him face-to-face at the Vanier Cup. And, and so some of, the, some of that is this is a great uh, football community in this country and, and uh, treating some of the, the, the great guys like Blake um, with respect and, and going through your process as professionally as you can is is how you stay in, in this industry for an entire professional career, which is what I'd like to do. That said, at the press conference today, I don't know how many times the word family was mentioned. How, did you, you got three boys, I believe, were they involved? When, when you told them that dad may be coming back to coach, Mc, uh, coach at McMaster, were they involved in the decision? And did they say, dad, like, that's the only choice you have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they like the idea of uh, dad within four kilometers, and and uh, uh, as much as they love seeing Vancouver, and, and it was a great experience for the whole family. Um, when dad misses uh, misses a cross country meet or uh, uh, an, an injured something, it, it's hard, and I uh, I I think they're pretty excited that uh, we're going to be uh, right next door for uh, the next uh, few years. Well, I I heard from a number of people today that they were very excited that you were back that because again it's the name recognition and i got to imagine that your phone lit up when when it became clear that you were coming back here there were a lot of people in the community that see this as a real jolt to the program again and a real sort of uh, not that the program had died off not not that at all but just those glory days people remember those and to have that face and that name come back people had to have been excited to hear that it it was fun Uh, i was the press conference today the uh, people from all four corners of that campus that, that came out to say hi and, and different faculties in different areas and and, uh, and just excited to work with me again was like overwhelming. Um, my phone has been a, a popular hit and uh, lots of alumni have reached out. Uh, I got uh, I got a text from Mike Morelli that says he, he he'll come by and help at practice. So you got to help me hold him accountable for that. Uh, <laughs> and and there's uh, the list goes on. So it, it's been it's been overwhelming. And Marauder Nation, I I do believe, is a silent but very powerful group. And and we saw at the 2012 Vanier Cup, 37,000 fans, the largest event in U sport history. Yeah, the Marauder Nation's bigger than we all appreciate. Steph Potasic, welcome back. Glad you're back. And uh, all you got to do now to top it is to go to four or five more Vanya Cups, and everyone will be happy. You know what? One day at a time. <laughs> One day at a time. That is Steph Potasic. Thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.